Hello and welcome to the brand new University of Exeter Alumni Business Podcast, where we will be bringing you regular content, including interesting alumni stories, the latest research from our academic staff and discussion on current global issues. I'm Josh Papanicola, Alumni Manager in the Business School, and today I'm joined by Professor Will Harvey and Navdi Barora, who will be talking about professional misconduct and discussing some truly fascinating research that they've conducted on this topic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Um, would you be able to start by introducing yourselves to our listeners and then Will, I'll let you start by introducing the research project. Thank you Josh. Um, my name is Will Harvey. I'm the Associate Dean of Research in the Business School and Professor of Management. My area of re research is in the area of reputation, how organisations and individuals can build, manage and rehabilitate their reputations. Hello everyone. This is Navdeep Arora, and I'm a PhD student uh, at the University of Exeter, working with Professor Will Harvey. Thank you very much, Navdeep and Will. Uh, Will, why don't you give us a bit of context around the project and the data collected? Thanks, Josh. We're really interested in the issue of how individuals lose reputation. And there are many high profile leaders who have been incarcerated as a result of professional misconduct. Some people that come to mind include Martha Stewart, Kweki Adeboli, Jeffrey Skilling, of course. And we were particularly interested in what can we learn from people like these individuals when they reflect in prison on their past actions. And in particular, we were focused on two questions. Why and how did they do it? Uh, and what can organizations do to prevent it? And so our, our research was focused specifically on why and how do individuals commit professional misconduct within organizations? And in, in terms of the data that we collected, we feel that we've got a really unique set of data that we draw upon. So we conducted three rounds of interviews with 70 inmates and 20 focus groups between August 2018 and November 2019. And these people that we interviewed were all professionals who have been incarcerated in a United States federal prison for white collar crimes. What's so interesting is these people range in age from 27 to 71 years of age, with the median age being 47. And these are people across all spectrums of professions. These are chief executives, investment and fund managers, management consultants, doctors, real estate developers, public accountants, technologists, entrepreneurs, and public and civic leaders. Why we think this is particularly interesting as a data set is twofold. One is getting access to people who are in prison is extremely difficult. And two, we had a unique situation where the data collection was from someone, Navdeep, who had a direct experience uh, of, of what the inmates were going through themselves. So in other words, what the inmates would be telling Navdeep would be very different from what someone maybe coming from the outside um, would say. Okay, that's incredibly interesting. Navdeep, um, would you be able to um, talk us through some of the headline findings of the study? <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Josh. So, uh, 
I think our study really led to a set of findings that were uh, quite eye-opening and deeply insightful. And to be honest, uh, quite contrary to what we, 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 we went in uh, thinking. Number one, we found that individuals rarely set out to commit professional conduct. You know, they, you know, but literally sleep walked across ethical lines over time. Number two, we found uh, that, you know, again, in, in fact, uh, counter to, to, to what we had read before and counter to common beliefs, we found that greed is over-exaggerated as a motivator. In fact, less than 10% of the participants actually talked about greed and, and singular self-interest as the driver behind their professional misconduct. Number three, when we, when we unpeeled, when we started to unpeel the onion and understand, you know, what really drove people to cross the line, you know, and especially uh, well-educated, successful people, uh, we found that it was, it was really, you know, uh, the culmination of several organizational factors interacting with individual triggers to drive unethical behaviors. Number four, we found that, you know, despite the emphasis on compliance and controls, despite, you know, all of the, uh, you know, investments that, that we've seen in the markets um, on compliance and controls, uh, on, uh, you know, aggressive levels of scrutiny since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, uh, we, found, we found that despite all of that, uh, more regulation can actually increase misconduct, which was fascinating for us. Uh, we'll, we'll go into as to you know, why, why that happens later. Now, uh, now, diving into what are some of the individual triggers? You know, we, we, we talked about the fact that uh, it's a combination of organizational factors such as culture, such as governance, such as the, the structure, such as some of the practices that over time interact with individual triggers to push people over uh, the ethical lines. So the real question is, what are those individual triggers? Uh, we found six individual triggers. Number one, uh, uh, well, and actually, uh, perhaps the most pervasive driver was the burden of custodianship, where people felt driven by a responsibility for their stakeholders, both personal stakeholders, family members, as well as professional stakeholders. Uh, they were all. They also seemed uh, driven by, you know, uh, several failures to 
to meet stakeholder expectations. The second factor was the fear of failure, uh, which really came out, uh, you know, as we again uh, dove, in, uh, dove in deeper uh, uh, through a through a need for self-preservation and fear of losing their reputation, fear of losing uh, the successes that they had built over through years of hard work. The third factor was ego and hubris. Again, uh, ego and hubris that was driven through a record of successes, ego and hubris that was driven by thrill of risk, and over time, a perceived invincibility, uh, uh, you know, especially in, in large successful organizations you know, that consider themselves the industry watchdogs. The fourth factor was individuals overcompensating for perceived deficiencies. And these deficiencies you know, included a multitude of things from all the way from personal tragedy and grief to a substitute for happiness in their lives to proxies for perceived shortcomings in their achievements, uh, in their capabilities, and a deep desire to show the external world that they were actually better than uh, uh, what they believed they were being perceived as. So that was number four. Uh, number five uh, was a lack of resources, a lack of capacity, sometimes sometimes a lack of knowledge, capability to respond um, uh, to the challenges posed, posed by increased regulation, posed by increased scrutiny, and at times to respond to mistakes they had made. And then lastly, um, in, in about 10% of our respondents, we found uh, a set of personal beliefs and values uh, that drove uh, people to cross ethical lines. These beliefs and values were, you know, things such, you know, uh, uh, such as uh, denial, such as uh, people thinking of professional misconduct as no harm, no foul, people looking at other people and saying, everyone's doing it, so why not I? And people are just, you know, uh, not having uh, the respect or belief in societal values, rules, and regulations. So those are the six triggers that we found that drove people eventually over the, across the line. Um, so then we, you know, we go from there and we say, okay, so what? What does this mean? What are the implications of this? What do we do with this information? <clears throat> and so I, I'll talk about three implications. The first one is that <clears throat> it's really the interaction of our environment. And when I talk about environment, I mean our regulatory environment, 
uh, our ecosystem, uh, the rules and regulations, um, you know, um, the globality of how business is done, the blurring boundaries between different sectors. It's a combination of our environment, our organizations, or organizational factors such as governance, the, the culture, the um, uh, within organizations, the culture of you know uh, uh, target-driven cultures, the um, and individual triggers, what we are calling the apples, the barrels, and the sellers that come together to push people over ethical lines. The second implication of this is <clears throat> that the unintended consequences of organizational factors that focus on greater compliance, greater control and training, greater normative behaviors actually potent over time outweigh the intended benefits. And the reason for this is that people start, you know, when push comes to shove, and uh, people start to conflate ethical issues with cost-benefit decisions. And, and, and they use the same standards to make ethical decisions uh, rather than using very binary standards, wrong or right, for ethical decisions. And then number three, uh, you know, individual decisions and actions are sel seldom driven by greed rather by intuition that is largely consistent with their professional values, beliefs, and experiences. So, uh, so I think those are, uh, uh, those are the, uh, the so what's. And the real question for us now becomes, you know, what do we do about this, right? If, if a focus on greater compliance, if a focus on greater controls, if a focus on greater scrutiny is actually going to have, uh, is actually going to cause people to cross ethical lines rather than prevent it, then what do we do differently? So with that, I'll, 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 I'll hand it back over to Josh. It really is fascinating, Navdeep. Thank you for that. Um, understandably, um, Will, it, this has attracted a bit of high profile media coverage. Um, could you talk us through a bit of that? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yeah, we, we were very fortunate, actually, um, to be invited by Andrew Hill, who's the management editor of the Financial Times, uh, to go and uh, speak to him in London uh, about the research. And um, that uh, led after a 90-minute conversation talking through the research to uh, having um, quite some significant exposure of our research in the Financial Times um, in February of this year. So I think it's um, gaining a, a lot of practical um, traction this research, um, not least because although it's intellectually interesting, this has all kinds of resonances in a number of different ways. So just, just thinking, for instance, of some big trends right now in terms of uh, climate targets, think about how climate targets, for instance, uh, can sometimes have perverse implications. Think about the Dieselgate scandal with VW, for instance, clearly all of us uh, are experiencing the challenges of uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and of course that will um, necessitate certain, um, uh, following certain rules and regulations. 
and invariably unfortunately we will see uh, a lot of breaching of those uh, types of rules which will lead to obviously uh, various forms of misconduct and there are plenty of other examples that come to mind you know think about the gender pay gap which of course is another very positive step forward and then of course there's lots of evidence from that including in the financial times around how a lot of organizations are fudging the numbers um, because they're worried that they, they will come across uh, badly so i think this research has got a, a lot of resonance in, in a number of different contexts that are currently uh, very salient in, in in the public domain okay and a, a final question um before we wrap up final question for, for both of you will and navdeep uh, having carried out this project and seen the findings, what do you think businesses can learn from this research and, and what can they do to prevent professional misconduct? Thanks, Josh. Well, why don't I just talk through first, just a sort of a reminder of before one actually thinks about what you can do as a business to respond, it, it's first key to understand, well, what are the factors that causes misconduct in the first place? So if I focus on that, then perhaps Navdeep can talk through some of the behavioral interventions that businesses can deploy. So, so what does cause misconduct? Well, Navdeep talked about those three levels, and I think that's important to remind the listeners that they're the, the level of the individual, the level of the organization, and the regulatory level. So at the individual level, um, I think it's really important that when people are making decisions, they are not too far removed from the consequences of those decisions. When we're dealing with white collar types of work, sometimes because of the distances people have, the physical distance, and that's obviously very relevant right now as people are having to enact social distance, people can forget that the consequences can actually be quite far reaching. So that would be one example at the individual level of what might cause um, professional misconduct. At the organizational level, clearly, if you've got a situation where there are very aggressive target cultures, um, then what you find is there tends to be an overemphasis amongst employees of loyalty to the organization, as opposed to loyalty to, let's say, the profession as a whole. And then at the regulatory uh, level, I think uh, Navdeep touched upon this already, but clearly um, one of the challenges when we see big shifts in expectation at a societal level or a sector level, what that can often lead to at an organizational level is kind of unwieldy change, which creates a lot of expectation on people. And so whilst um, the ethos behind greater regulation, control and compliance is a positive one. The danger, if you have excessive regulation and red tape, is that actually it becomes a, a major barrier and it's unwieldy for individuals. And so perversely, by actually taking steps to increase regulation, you can actually potentially uh, increase misconduct as well. So those would be the three causes at the individual organization and, and regulatory level. Navdeep, perhaps you could briefly just talk through, well, what does that mean in terms of how businesses can respond? <clears throat> yes, thank you, Will. Uh, as Will suggested, uh, last 10 to 12 years, uh, ever since the 2008 financial crisis, um, I think the industry has taken on a very defensive posture towards regulations. 
and, and in the industry, if you, um, uh, the industry talks about the uh, three lines of defense, which, you know, in essence implies, you know, a, a very aggressive focus on uh, controls, compliance, scrutiny, and normative behaviors. Unfortunately, as Will alluded to, uh, that has resulted in un unintended consequences as people under pressure have actually uh, made the wrong decisions and treated ethical decisions the same way they would treat uh, a daily cost-benefit driven business decision. So uh, we, uh, I'll quickly touch upon seven recommendations that are uh, rooted in how people make decisions uh, and in behavioral interventions. The first one of these is providing social anchoring. Uh, during our interviews, we found that participants consistently reported isolating themselves before and during the events that led to their professional misconduct conduct, as they were driven by fear, apprehension, and anxiety. Um, so providing social anchoring uh, would mean helping people to recognize signs of isolation in themselves and their colleagues, and to enable people to seek and provide social support during times of personal crises and stress. Uh, which we believe would prevent the slippery slope to professional misconduct. <clears throat> Our second recommendation is personalizing the potential victims to address, you know, the increasing disconnectedness we are seeing between individuals and the consequences of, of their decisions. <clears throat> so, for instance, you know, we've... Uh, We've observed that if, if, you have, if you ask people to sign their full names next to their photograph and not merely tick the box after legal disclaiming text, uh, that it invokes a level of self-identity and personal moral values and, and prevents people from professional misconduct. Our third recommendation is to really think beyond compliance. Uh, and as Will alluded to earlier, that aggressive target-driven cultures, <clears throat> uh, you know, focus, push people towards, more towards the outcome and the results uh, while disregarding the process they use to get to the results. So our recommendation really talks about ensuring an unrelenting focus on means or the process used to achieve the results uh, and the results in tandem rather than just the results. Our fourth recommendation is decoupling standards for ethical and business decisions. You know, as we, as we mentioned earlier, people under pressure uh, conflate ethical issues with cost-benefit decisions and use the same standards. So we believe that decoupling those standards would in, entail developing distinct and well-understood standards for evaluating 
and making ethical decisions and ensuring that people feel the right accountability and incentives to drive those behaviors. Our fifth recommendation is around enabling graceful exits. <clears throat> a lot of our participants talked about falling down a slippery slope or being sucked into a vortex, leading to further misconduct to cover up the previous mistakes. <clears throat> so graceful exits in this case would mean, uh, you know, basically giving people regular general amnesty to avoid escalation, giving people incentives and rewards for admitting mistakes and seeking help. Our sixth rec recommendation is about fostering judgment over intuition. Our research shows that the fear of losing reputation, the burden of custodianship, uh, actually drives people to use their intuition and gut feeling uh, and to immediately <clears throat> go into uh, uh, a single course of action driven by fight or flight rather than a thoughtful judgment based on an analysis of multiple courses of actions. So, so, so the question becomes, <clears throat> how do you foster this? And we believe thoughtful judgment can be fostered by instituting options analysis, uh, telling people that every time they, do a, they, 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 they look for a solution, they need to think about a minimum of two, uh, inviting people to roundtable discussions and group decision-making. <clears throat> our, our final recommendation <clears throat> is <clears throat> uh, to ensure that organizations instill memorable and meaningful values that are constantly and consistently role modeled. I think a lot of organizations talk about values, but over time they end up being check the boxes. Um, so I think in our, um, our participants talked about openly articulating, discussing and demonstrating values through individual behaviors. And, and, and there was a very good suggestion about uh, about a one-minute test uh, where you ask people four simple questions. What are the three values that your organization espouses? Can you actually articulate those? How often are they discussed? How are they exhibited and enacted in your organization? And what was the last time you had to make a decision based on your values? So uh, in essence, that those seven, we believe that those seven behavioral interventions can go a long way in ensuring our much better effectiveness of our current controls and, climb, uh, controls and compliance regime. Thank you, Will, I'll hand it back to you. That's great, thank, thank you, Navdi. No, nothing more to add, but other than just to kind of summarize that I think in order to understand what businesses can do, it's first key to understand what the causes are and then to kind of work through what understanding those root causes, how can organizations essentially focus on effective interventions rather than kind of a firefighting, preventative, re reactive uh, approach, better to think about a more preventative uh, approach. So, so that would be our kind of fairly extensive sort of summary for you, Josh. Brilliant. Uh, Will and Navdeep, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast for what has been a really captivating summary of, of your research. Um, 
I will mention that we're still all hoping to come together again to present this at our next business school alumni reception in London uh, in the near future um, once uh, things have changed um, after the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so to UK-based alumni, please keep your eye out for this on the Exeter Alumni website, uh, exeter.ac.uk forward slash alumni supporters. Um, or look out for your alumni newsletters, which include all the latest news, alumni developments, and the research stories and events that we are uh, holding in your area. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. And uh, thanks again to Will and Navdeep. And uh, stay tuned for the next Alumni Business Podcast soon. Thank you.